Second Chronicles chapter 14. And we'll, we'll read the text in a little bit, but let's just pray. Lord, your word says, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Surely, Lord, we here in the coastlands have reason to rejoice in you. We are those who have been saved by what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, so that you so love the world, you gave your Son. Whosoever shall believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son into the world to save the world that we might not be judged. Thank you that while we were enemies of God, sinners, rebels, you pursued us. And you found us here in this place. And by grace and for your own glory, you've saved us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are faithful. You'll never leave us or forsake us. You've done more and you will do more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. You're faithful to complete the work that you've begun. You, Jesus, for your own glory and fame, are bringing all things to their proper end, a consummation, a finish, a glorious finish in you. Thank you that you're doing all these things. And we just want to say that, Lord, we want to stick with you. Life is crazy, Lord. Life is good and life is hard. Life is fun and life is heartbreaking. Through it all, you remain faithful. Cause us to be faithful. Cause us to continually seek your face. Cling to you. Walk with you. Follow you. By your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. And now as we look to your word, speak to our lives. You know where we're at. You know what's going on. Speak to us and teach us for your purposes and your glory. Please anoint me to teach and preach for the glory of Jesus Christ. Pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I've thought about this day for so long, you know, 10-year anniversary. And it's really, really good to remember and celebrate. We see all throughout Scripture, God always calling his people to remember what he has done. If you read the Psalms, it's, it's all through there. You read the Old Testament, New Testament, it's all through there. God is always beckoning his people to remember what he has done. He forced Israel to gather in Jerusalem, no matter where they were at the time, to pilgrimage to Jerusalem and celebrate at least three times a year the things that God had done for them. It's very important that we do so. But I have to admit, I'm at a loss as to how to do that. You know, we got some balloons and we got some smoke tri-tip and we're gathered together. And I don't know how you commemorate 10 years. I don't know how you remunerate or, or, or count or, or even speak about the lives that have been changed, the people that have been saved, the, the marriages that have been redeemed, the kids that have been born and grown up in our church and sent out. And I I can't even remember a fraction of it. So I don't know what to do, but to look to the scriptures for something that might speak to us 
pertaining to where we are and where we're going. I want to talk about and look at the life of King Asa. King Asa. Asa was a king over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, during the period when Israel was a divided kingdom after Solomon. Okay? Asa was one of the kings of the southern kingdom, Judah, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And he ruled as king over the southern kingdom of Judah for 41 years. He died about 900 years before Christ came. And the story of Asa is like so many others that we see in Scripture, like so many other kings, so many other leaders that we read about in Scripture. Asa didn't finish particularly well, his reign or his life. He started out very strong. Meaning that when he was a young man and he became king, he obeyed the Lord and he rallied others to obey the Lord and he trusted the Lord and he relied upon the Lord in his formative years. Read in the scriptures that it says of him, he did what was pleasing to God. But in his later years, like so many others, he just drifted. He just ceased to rely upon the Lord. He wasn't like the other kings in that he did something wrong or or evil per se necessarily. I mean, he did do something wrong. We'll see that. But it it wasn't atrocious stuff. He just kind of drifted. He just got more into self and self-reliance than relying on God and seeking God. Just got to this point where it didn't seem that God was as central for him as he once was in his earlier years. Now, as I said, this is a common story in Scripture with men and women, and particularly with leaders. In fact, the southern kingdom of Judah only ever had nine kings who were considered good, about whom it said they obeyed and trusted. Eight of those nine slipped at the height of their reign. So only nine good kings, the rest were trash, And eight of those nine slipped, drifted, fell in some way at the height of their reign. Common story in the Old Testament. But it's not only a common story in the Old Testament with kings. This is a common story these days with churches. So many start well. And there's youthful vigor and zeal and sincere seeking after the Lord and following the Lord and endeavoring at all costs to obey the Lord and always do what is pleasing to him. I mean, most churches start that way. Why would you start a church if that was not your goal? That's not what you were endeavoring to do. But that that story of the kings of Judah and the story of churches today, there's so much commonality there. So many churches, it seems, that have lost their vitality. Ceased to obey, trust, rely, just perhaps drifted a bit. Christ is not as central as he once was. So I want to look at the life of King Asa as a metaphor for the church, our church. After all, the Responsibility of a king and the responsibility of a church is very similar in that both are entrusted for the well-being of a people and a place. But as it is with a king, so it is with a church. Its vitality 
and effectiveness and well-being is dependent upon its obedience to and reliance upon the Lord. Faithfulness before God with what's been entrusted. So I'm going to lead us in looking at Asa as a metaphor for the church, but Asa doesn't only represent the church for us today. In many ways, Asa represents us. Because the church is not some organism that exists separate from people. The the church is us. The church is you. The church is me. The church is made up of people. And as the people goes, so goes the church. Right? And so in some ways, it may be that Asa is representative of or a metaphor for us. And the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, will our story be the same? Will it be that story of, oh, there was youthful vigor and zeal and excitement and sincere seeking after the Lord, and it was vital and effective in its early days, but later on down the road, they just seemed to have drifted. She seems to have drifted. He seems to have drifted. Oh, they weren't doing outright evil, but it just didn't seem that Christ was as central as he once was. What will be the story of our lives? We're going to see here that Asa's life is encompassed with three chapters of Scripture. 41 years of reign. Many years of faithfulness to God. Three chapters of Scripture. None of us will get three chapters of Scripture to speak about our lives. We will have an epitaph. We will have a few words on a headstone if the Lord should tarry. And after that, memories. Maybe an obituary. Very few of us a book. But what will the story of your life, my life, and our life together as a church of Jesus Christ be? Let's see a little bit of the story of Asa. 2 Chronicles 14, starting in verse 1. When Abijah died, I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning because it's helpful in these Old Testament narratives. Very clear. When Abijah died, he was buried in the city of David. Then his son, Asa, became the next king. And there was peace in the land for 10 years. Asa did what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded the people of Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and to obey his law and his commandments. Asa also removed the pagan shrines as well as the incense altars from every, from every one of Judah's towns. So Asa's kingdom enjoyed a period of peace. During those peaceful years, he was able to build up the fortified towns throughout Judah. No one tried to make war against him at this time. For the Lord was giving him rest from his enemies. Verse 7, Asa told the people of Judah, let us build towns and fortify them with walls, towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord our God. He has given us peace on every side. So they went ahead with these projects and brought them to completion. Let's pause right there. Interestingly enough, we have Asa 10 years into his tenure. Same juncture where we are as a church. 
10 years in. He's been entrusted with a people and he's been entrusted with a place. And he's 10 years in and it says that during that time he's been doing what was pleasing and good in the sight of the Lord. He dealt with the false gods. He dealt with the idols in the land. He led others. He led the people to seek the Lord and obey them. And as a result, it says in verse five, there was peace in the land for 10 years, meaning it was a good time. It was a fruitful time. It was a prosperous time. It wasn't a time where they were having to spend all their energy and their resources on war and distractions, but they got to like settle down and get something done, right? For the glory of God and the good of the people entrusted with the people in a place. A good, fruitful 10 years. And it was because they were seeking the Lord and obeying him that they were secure in the land and able to accomplish some things and build the kingdom and the place and among the people that they had been entrusted. Again, verse seven, let us build towns and fortify them with walls, towers, gates, and bars. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord, our God. So they went ahead with these projects and brought them to completion. Let's think about it for a minute. 10 years of well-being, peace, success, and expansion and building the kingdom. No doubt in that 10 year, there were difficult days. We're not given all the details. He's only got three chapters for his whole life. No doubt there were difficult days in his own life and difficult days in the southern kingdom of Judah. No doubt there were heartbreaking times and many challenges. We don't have all the details. But in general, it was an amazingly fruitful 10 years. And I'm struck by the fact as I think about how we remember and celebrate and commemorate 10 years, that there's just that little summary statement of all that they accomplished. Right? They said, let's build some towns, let's fortify some cities, let's do some stuff. And it says, and they got it done. That's all it says. There's a part of me that wants the full list. Right? I mean, it, it must have been a lot. Listen, kings know how to get junk done. Right? They, they have many slaves. It must have been a lot of stuff that had gotten done in 10 years of peace. When a king's at war and distracted, he can't get a lot done. But 10 years of peace in the southern kingdom of Judah meant that there was a ton of stuff that was accomplished for the glory of God and the well-being of the people in the place that they had been entrusted with. But just that little summary statement. They did some stuff. They got it done. The land is still ours because we sought the Lord. Our church started because there were a few people praying. Just some people praying in Carpinteria for God to do something for his glory and his fame, for the sake of his kingdom, for the well-being of the people in the place. Just people started praying. And then in the beginning of September 2003, God birthed a church. And since that time, people have continued to pray. And since that time, God has done amazing things. When we were just less than three years old, we started Reality Los Angeles. We, we birthed that church. And we did it because there was a bunch of people driving up from L.A., all these nutty people, every Sunday for church. Some of them are here this morning. And we said, get your own dang church. We'll help you start one. <laughs> we didn't know what we were doing, right? We were just a few years old. We were trying to figure it out. Started this church in the heart of Hollywood. It's now a church of almost 4,000 people in Hollywood. A couple years after that, 
we found a young man who was called to what Forbes magazine has repeatedly voted the most miserable city in America to live in. Stockton, California. The most miserable city in America to live in. How do they even know? So by the Holy Spirit's leading and for the glory of Jesus Christ in that most miserable place in 2007, we birthed Reality Stockton that is still there and has now birthed other churches. 2010, the Lord gave us prophetic visions for the city of San Francisco. We had pastors in the city tell us, don't come here, don't do this. This is a waste of your time. Pack your bags, turn around, get as far from those places as you can. This is where pastors and churches come to die. And that, that had been the testimony of San Francisco for a long time. So on January 10th of 2010, by leading in the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Jesus Christ, we birthed Reality San Francisco. It is now the largest evangelical church in the city of San Francisco. And then we met this guy named Al Abdullah. We thought he was a Muslim. We love Muslims, but he wanted to be a pastor. And the Holy Spirit said, I want you to go to the least churched area in all of America. I want you to go to the place where more world leaders have come from per capita, been educated per capita than any other place in the world. I want you to start a church in Boston. So in September 2012, we started a church in Boston. It's there. It's like a church. They're like doing it. That's okay. (laughs) The least church area of America. This little campus over the years in the silly little city that I love so much where I was born and raised just grew so big that we had to tell everyone from Ventura, go home, we'll give you your own place. Started a campus in Ventura. Same thing in Santa Barbara, right? Two years ago this week, we started that campus in Santa Barbara. And then recently, God has fulfilled a decade-long dream and started Realidad, our Spanish church right here. And from this place, God has sent missionaries all over the world, Africa, Asia, Thailand, Israel, the Middle East among Muslims, Indonesia, Mexico, China, South America, you name it, all over the world. But really, all it is, is this. We sought the Lord. He entrusted us with a place and a people. We sought the Lord. He gave us some ideas, led us by his spirit. We got some stuff done. Surely, Asa and the southern kingdom of Judah did infinitely more than we've endeavored to do. But there is a reason that we must grab on to. As King Asa said, the land is still ours and we got some stuff done because we sought the Lord our God. So how do we posture ourselves as we move forward? Because what what we need to know at a church who is now 10 years old is that there's a lot more stuff to do Right? I mean, locally, there's a lot of people here in Carpinteria that still need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and see his love made manifest. Here in the coastlands and the surrounding areas, there's a lot to do. There are a lot of missionaries 
that still need to be sent. Some of you are sitting here today and you've been saying no to God for so long. Can you just yield so we can get your rear end on the mission field? There's more churches to plant. God has told that explicitly to my wife and I. There's more churches to plant from the Carpinteria campus. We know that. There's more work to do. Just lots of disciples to be made. Next couple years, we'll be launching a school of ministry and mission. How do we posture ourselves? God has given us grace, a people in a place. We got some stuff done. Now, moving forward, there are two roads that we can go by. Two roads that we can go by. Look in verse 8. This is the first road. King Asa had an army of 300,000 warriors from the tribe of Judah, armed with large shields and spears. He also had an army of 280,000 warriors from the tribe of Benjamin, armed with small shields and bows. Both armies were composed of well-trained fighting men. Once, an Ethiopian named Zerah attacked Judah with an army of one million men. In the Hebrew, it just says thousands of thousands. I don't know if it's literally one million, but it was more, much, much more, than Asa had, and 300 chariots. They advanced to the town of Marashah, whatever. So Asa deployed his armies for battle in the valley north of that place. Verse 11. Then Asa cried out to the Lord his God. Listen to his prayer, brothers and sisters. Listen to his prayer and think about your life. Oh, Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us. O Lord, our God, for we trust in you alone. It is in your name that we have come against this vast horde. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. Verse 12, so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians. In the presence of Asa and the army of Judah and the army fled. Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar and so many Ethiopians fell that they were unable to rally. They were destroyed by the Lord and his army. And the army of Judah carried off a vast amount of plunder. Now, these were real battles with real people with real flesh and blood. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. Against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. But our battle is just as real. We're not battling against Ethiopians invading the land. We're battling against demonic strongholds that have been in the land for a long time. There's infinitely more at stake in our battle today in the coastlands than there was in Judah at this time. We're talking about eternal things. The souls of men and women and children. We're talking about a very real battle. And and, and the lesson is this. God was faithful when Asa put all of his hope in him. He said, God, all, all of my confidence, all of my hope, all of my expectation is in you. The odds were overwhelming. Have you ever been in this place in your life where it's just they're stacked against you? You're fighting a, a situation or an enemy or circumstance. You just don't feel that you could win. It's just your heart breaks even looking at the possibility of how huge it is. That's what was going on. 
On the heels of 10 years of peace and prosperity, there is an army of thousands of thousands coming against them. This king has never known war. He's a greenhorn. His daddy knew war. His daddy's daddy knew war. He didn't know war. He said, God, if you don't help us, we're in trouble. You're our God. All of our hope is in you. The lesson is simply this. When God's people put all of their hope in God, God shows himself to be faithful. Now look what happens. Verse, chapter 15, excuse me, verse 1. This is when they're returning after the battle. Okay, here's the course forward. Then the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Oded. And he went out to meet King Asa as he was returning from the battle, okay? He's just seen this huge victory. He's on, the, he's on the heels of this amazing thing that God has done. And the prophet says, listen to me, Asa. He shouted. This is an important moment. Listen, all you people of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord will stay with you as long as you stay with him. Whenever you seek him, you will find him. But if you abandon him, he will abandon you. For a long time, Israel was without a true God, without a priest to teach them and without the law to instruct them. But whenever they were in trouble and turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him out, they found him. During those dark times, it wasn't safe to travel. Problems troubled the people of every land. Nation fought against nation and city against city. For God was troubling them with every kind of problem. But as for you, Asa, the people of Judah, entrusted with the people in a place, as for you, be strong and courageous, for your work will be rewarded. And when Asa heard this message from Azariah the prophet, he took courage. Isn't that interesting? Asa prayed to the Lord. He knew that the Lord was his only hope. And then right afterwards, the Lord sends a prophet to say, now Asa, that's the way you do it. That's how it's done. And then just this little pep talk. Asa, let's keep doing it that way. Okay, let's keep seeking the Lord. And as long as you seek the Lord, the Lord will be found. In your toil, your work won't be in vain. That just, just discomforting phrase, but, but if you abandon him, he will abandon you. Oh, man. Now, we know in the new covenant that that's not true for us. Jesus Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Right? We have this new covenant relationship. He remains faithful to it even when we're faithless. But wouldn't we all admit When do we all confess that there are times when we do indeed abandon the Lord in our own lives? It's not like an outright, ah, I'm done with you. There may be those times, but generally it's just a drift. Good times are in bad times, just that drift. First Corinthians 15 says, thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, we already have the victory through Jesus. 
The call on us, the road forward, road number one, is to be steadfast, immovable, to stick with it. Now, I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about you and your life. You are the church. I'm saying to you that Jesus is worth sticking with. That's what the prophet was foreshadowing. He said, now, Asa, that's the way to do it. You sought the Lord, you relied upon the Lord, you trusted the Lord, you've obeyed the Lord. Now continue to do that. And as long as you continue to do so, things will go well. And Asa says, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. And he took courage. How do we go forward? That's the first option. Then there's a second option. Chapter 16, starting in verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, okay, we're down the road a little bit now. Okay, we're down the road a bit. Some time's gone by. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, he's seen a lot since then, good times and bad times. King Basha of Israel invaded Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from entering or leaving King Asa's territory in Judah. Just remember now, the kingdom is divided. We've got the kingdom of Israel to the north, the kingdom of Judah to the south. God was so blessing the kingdom of Judah that a bunch of people were defecting from Israel and moving to Judah. And the king of Israel said, that's not good for like taxes and reputation and stuff. And so he tried to close the border, if you will, okay? So he had a, a stronghold, a city there that was his, and he, he was fortifying it so that people couldn't defect to Judah. And Judah and Israel were not getting along at this time. Verse two, Asa responded by removing the silver and gold Listen, Asa responded by removing the silver and gold from the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and the royal palace. He sent it to King Ben-Hadad of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus, along with this message, okay? So he raids the house of the Lord, takes the treasures and the utensils from the house of the Lord, and sends it to a a foreign king, modern-day Syria. Okay, what's he got to do with the stuff of the Lord? Nothing. Who is this silly king? What, what, what are you doing, Asa? And here's the message, verse 3. Let there be a treaty between you and me, like the one between your father and my father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. Break your treaty with King Basha of Israel so that he will leave me alone. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on just a second. Do you see the difference between the former road and, and this new road? Do you see the difference? Where, where was that prayer? Oh Lord, no one can help us but you. In you alone we trust. It's in your name. Lord, you are our God. Where was that prayer from decades earlier? It's not that there's just not that prayer. There's no prayer. Asa's functioning this way now. What can I do? I've got money. I've got stuff. I've got some heritage. My dad used to hang out with King of Damascus' dad. I've got some influence. I've got an idea. I I know how to get it done now. I I know how to make this work. It's a difficult juncture in life. It's a much smaller problem than Ethiopia and their evasion was. I'll handle this on my own. That sound familiar to anybody? No, you would never admit it. The interesting thing is, it totally works. Verse 4, Ben-Hadad agreed to King Asa's request and sent the commanders of his army to attack the towns of Israel. 
They conquered all the towns of that place, and Dan and Abel in that place, and all the store cities of Naphtali. As soon as Basha of Israel heard what was happening, he abandoned his project of fortifying Ramah and stopped all the work on it. Then King Asa called out all the men of Judah to carry away the building stones and timbers that Basha had been using to fortify Ramah. Asa used these materials to fortify the towns of Geba and Mizpah. Now stop right there. There's just a change in, in Asa's life now. Okay, it's not that, it's not that childlike prayer of God, you've got to help me. Now it's like, I'm, I'm not a child anymore. I've got some money. I've got some influence. I've got some ideas. And quite frankly, it worked. And it worked really well, right? King Basha of Israel said, oh, I'm, okay. I'm not going to do that anymore. And all the resources that Basha had put into building up Ramah, now King Asa goes and he takes them and he builds up his own cities. King Asa's looking good in the eyes of men. He's able to stand up and say, hey, I stopped the king of Israel and I took his junk and built up our kingdom with it. It looks good. But verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, prophet, came to King Asa and told him this. Because you have put your trust in the king of Aram, instead of in the Lord your God, you missed it. Now, he missed something in particular. He missed his chance to destroy the king of Aram. But the point is, you missed what God had for you. Verse 8. Look what the prophet says to him. Asa, don't you remember? How important is that? Don't you remember what happened to the Ethiopians and Libyans and their vast army with all their chariots and charioteers? Asa, don't you remember? At that time, you relied on the Lord. and He handed them over to you. Verse 9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Asa, what a fool you have been. From now on, you will be at war. Okay, I'm not talking about southern kingdom of Judah anymore. I'm not talking about reality of the church. I'm talking about your life. There are two paths you can go by. One is the one of humble, childlike dependence upon Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. The love of the Father manifests in the work of the Son. Always bringing your life before him. Saying, Lord, without you, I'm nothing. Without you, these things that face me are overwhelming. The issue in my parenting, the issue in my marriage, the issue in my business, the issue with my friends and my relationships. Lord, you are my God. I'm coming before you. That's the first road. The second road is I'm a little older now. I've lived a little while. I've seen some stuff. I know how to handle this. You see, Asa had become, for all intents and purposes, a practical atheist. He was still a monotheist. He still worshiped the one true God of Israel, supposedly. But for all intents and purposes, he was a practical atheist. He was living his life in his own strength, according to his own wisdom, his own ingenuity, with his own connections, to be the author of his own fate. Those are the two roads. I'm reminded of what Paul said to the Galatians. Galatians 3.3 3 said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... 
are you now going to finish in the flesh? I'm reminded of what the prophet said here in verse 9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is completely his. I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Hear it, brothers and sisters. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be an Asa. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Why? Here's a promise that comes with that. It will be healing for your body and refreshment to your bones. Man, can I get a witness of what life gets like when we try to live it in our own strength? Void of prayer and our own ideas with our own energy, trying to orchestrate things and be our own king over our own kingdom? Can anybody be honest and say, I'm tired of living that way? There are two roads that you could go by. The prophet said to him, don't you remember, Asa, at that time, in those formative years, in your early years, in your first 10 years, you relied on the Lord. You earnestly sought the Lord and he gave you rest on every side. It wasn't that life was easy. There were enemies, there were difficulties, there were heartaches and there were heartbreaks. But you sought the Lord and he was with you. Don't you remember? I'm reminded of James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, he's saying this. Become singularly focused on Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Let secondary things be secondary. Let tertiary things be tertiary. Let, let lesser things be lesser. Let Jesus be the king. Get off the throne and let him on. Stop trying to live in your own strength for your own glory. Seek the Lord in all things. What, what James called this is, is double-minded. Think of what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When he was talking about pure in heart, he wasn't talking about any sort of purity other than a singleness of heart. That's what he's saying. Blessed are those who are singular in heart toward God. Right? Their heart is completely his. The Lord's eyes go to and fro looking to show himself strong on behalf of someone whose heart is completely his. And Jesus comes along 900 years later and reverberates the story of Asa and the warning of the prophet when he said, blessed are the pure in heart, the singular in heart, for they shall see God. Meaning they're going to see God much more so than the distracted person in good times and in bad times. They're going to see God's blessing as he leads them. Listen to Isaiah 48, 17 and 18. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. In other words, I am your God, who teaches you what is good for you. Verse 18. If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river of water. Listen to that phrase. Your well-being would have been like a river of water. 
It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be rapids. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be rocks. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be dry times and difficult times. It means that there would be peace that surpasses comprehension. There would be something that transcends the drama of this lifetime in a commitment to following Christ as king. Again, if only you had paid attention to my commandments and your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Or as the New Living Translation says, righteousness would be rolling over you like waves from the ocean. Asa's life is a story of a slow drift. 900 years later, the author of Hebrews says this, chapter 2, verse 1. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. And then he wrote and said, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Jesus was saying the same thing when he gave the parable of the seeds, talking about the word of God and the call of God sprinkled into our hearts. He explains it in Mark 4 and says, the seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. Since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. When hard times come, they fall away. Listen, brothers and sisters, hard times are going to come. The thing to do in hard times is to cling to the Lord, not fall away. It's to draw nearer to the Lord, not the slow drift is to watch carefully over our hearts, for far from it come the springs of life. Hard times are going to come. Jesus said they're going to be those who receive the word gladly. When hard times come, they're not immovable. They're not steadfast. They're not sticking with it. Verse 18, the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things. So no fruit is produced. In the previous verse, he was talking about those who don't stick with it in hard times. Now he's talking about those who can't stick with it in good times. You know, there's two dangers in the Christian life, good times and bad times. Either of them wants to engage us in a slow drift from the Lord. But here's who you are. The last verse is who you are. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest. 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as he had planted. Brothers and sisters, you are 30, 60, 100 time Christians. I am so confident that at this juncture in your life, in your hard times and in your good times, and at this juncture in our church, with its hard times and its good times, with its challenges and its opportunities, in this place, with these people that we have been entrusted with, sent to by Jesus Christ, that we're going to bear fruit. I want to read to you and end right here. Hebrews 10 says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up 
a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Listen, listen. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us always think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. And especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So don't throw away this confident trust you have in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and my righteous ones will live by faith. The Lord says, I take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But you are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. You are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. Listen, brothers and sisters, someday, should the Lord tarry, we will all be left with an epitaph. We're not going to get three chapters. We're going to get a sentence or two. Inherent in that sentence is this simple truth. Christ never left you. He never forsook you. He was faithful to the very end. The rest of the story is ours to write. Thank you, Father, for your glorious call on our lives, your wonderful work in our midst, and the redeeming blood of your Son. And we thank you, Father, for the person and the power of the Holy Spirit by whom you intend to enable us to walk with you all the days of our lives. Lord, I want to be one who finishes well. I want to be part of a church that finishes well. I want to be surrounded by men and women, friends, kids, and acquaintances who are intending by grace and for God's glory to finish well. I want to live in a city and an area that is radically impacted by those who have determined to finish well. I don't want much of an epitaph when I come to the end, Lord. But I want it to be known that I walked with God all the days of my life. So enable us to do that, Holy Spirit, that you would come and enthrone Christ in the midst of our hearts and our church. The Holy Spirit, you would cause Jesus to be the center. Father, you know our good times and our bad times. You know our pain. You know our deepest places of pain. You know our deepest disappointments. And you're there. And you're faithful. You are the God who is with us and has compassion on us. We thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and minister the love of the Father in our hearts. Steady us and make us immovable for the glory of Jesus in our city.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.